Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for allowing us into your head today. We know you have a lot of things you'd like to put into your head, and we're glad that we made the cut. TheNextTrack.com is where you can find all of our past episodes. If you're a relatively new listener, you can find two years of stuff up there. Each episode has a page of immaculate and impeccable show notes that Kirk does a great job on. Also, we've got information on our guests. Speaking of guests, we've got a guest today. We are going to talk about John Cage, and in order to do so, we figure we better talk to an expert. So joining us today is musician, composer, music critic, author, and professor of music at Bard College, Kyle Gann. Kyle, it's great to meet you. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. It's uh, it's made my day to be on this podcast. So. <laughs> we we want to thank Kyle because he went through Skype hell to be able to get access to his Skype account. I know what it's like, and some of our guests have this problem. So we really do appreciate the time you spent to bang your head against Microsoft's odd security policies. I wanted to get you on the show because I recently read a book of yours. It's not your most recent book. It's called No Such Thing as Silence, John Cage's 4.33 or 4 minutes 33 seconds. I think it was Laura Kuhn when she was on the show some months ago who mentioned how interesting this book was. When I look back at, we've been doing this podcast for a bit more than two years, and I think the topic we've covered the most is The Grateful Dead, which of course makes sense. But I think the topic we've covered the second most is actually John Cage. We've had three people talking about John Cage so far. I've always appreciated John Cage's music, his writings, his his state of mind. Maybe later in the show, I'll mention how I met him and interviewed him in 1986. But when most people hear about John Cage, they think, oh, he's the guy who wrote the silent piece of music. And that's a bit reductive. But what your book shows is that in many ways, this piece 433 crystallizes everything that he'd been doing up until that time. Well, it, um, it was certainly the big turning point in his life because up until that point, he had been writing a very kind of mild-mannered, quiet, mostly quiet music, uh, much simpler than most of the music that was being written at the time, and nobody understood it. Uh, I mean, nobody paid any attention to it, because everybody was writing these big, loud, brassy symphonies in the 1940s. Um, and so he was into this quiet music, and I think at some point he just had to make a complete turnabout and when he got into chance, which was first with musical changes, and then 433 came next. And from that point on, his output was completely different than it had been. So, Yeah, a lot of it has to do with that discovery of the I Ching and the use of that to um, use chance operations. But there's also this whole element of the happening of the appreciation of silence. I'll mention one thing right away, and I'm glad that you debunked the story about him going into the anechoic room at Harvard University, where some engineer told him, he said he heard two sounds, and some engineer said the high sound is your nervous system and the low sound is your blood or something like that, which is demonstrably false. And yet people have been repeating this in books about John Cage for ages. As you say in the book, and I've seen a couple of articles that mention this, the high sound, most likely tinnitus that we all have, and the low sound was probably some sort of circulatory thing. Yeah, because he did eventually have uh, uh, some kind of heart problem. And I have a friend, or actually one of my former teachers, Peter Gina, who does a lot of stuff combining mu music and medicine. And he confirmed 
<clears throat> years ago that, that, that those stories about what those sounds were weren't true. And it's amazing how defensive people get when you debunk that. They want to believe what Cage said. <laughs> and it just, you know, hearing your nervous system in operation, that's just not, not a thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, but anyone who's involved in music certainly has a little bit of tinnitus. And, and when you go into a room that is that quiet, it will show up. Yeah. But, but I think what's really interesting is regardless of the explanation, Cage realized that there is no such thing as silence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, my uh, Peter has found students young enough that they don't have any tinnitus yet, and they've gone into an anechoic chamber and found it completely silent. Oh, okay. I, I cannot imagine what that would be like. But not many people get to experience that, and I certainly wouldn't myself. <laughs> my body's making all kinds of noises by itself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the silence that he realized didn't exist is part of what prompted him to create this piece, isn't it? The fact that the, the, the silence is relative, and once that there are, is a performer and an audience, there can't be silence. Well, I think, um, for me, one of the big things in writing the book was find, was realizing that it started out as a kind of political gesture because he was, he was so upset about Muzak. And a lot of people were back then, and Colin Nankara, who's the same age and who, on whom I also wrote a book, uh, kept a list of restaurants in Mexico City that didn't play Muzak, and those were the only ones he'd go to. <laughs> Musicians were just horrified, and rightly so. And it would case went to the Supreme Court. I didn't know that. And, you know, they were horrified by this intrusion of public music into their lives. What, 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 what was the reason that they were suing? They wanted to prevent companies from using Muzak? Yes, they, they wanted to be left alone in a public space. They didn't think corporations should be able to impose on them in a public space. And wow. unfortunately, unfortunately, they lost. But one of the justices felt so strongly a matter, about the matter that he had to recuse himself. Because <laughs> he, he hated Muzak so much. Wow. And so it was, he wanted to sell a silent record to the Muzak Corporation so that for four and a half minutes, and records, Muzak records came in either, either three minute or four and a half minute lengths. And he wanted to be able to uh, win four and a half minutes of silence from Muzak that way. So it was orig originally started out as kind of political protest. Yeah, I, I've always thought that it he, he did it uh, to be a provocateur. And then, as I've heard more about the, the, the actual piece, I said, oh, no, he was making, you know, serious musical statements with this sort of thing and performance statements. But it, it was really just to, to stick it to the man. <laughs> <laughs> to attempt to, yeah. Well, he then he had to go through, that was in 1948 that he announced that intention. And I think he didn't want to do it as kind of a negative gesture he needed to turn it into something positive uh but you're right he wasn't a provocateur in that sense he was his intentions were very serious and even if he wanted to do things that he knew would shock people he had to come up with very serious reasons for doing them and so when he got into zen and chance methods those gave him the the kind of philosophy he needed to turn the term protest gesture into a more positive sense. The, the first performance was a sort of a happening, wasn't it? It was in what, 1952, very close to where you live, yeah. right? Um, right. What it, what, Maverick Concert Hall in Woodstock. 
but it was more of a was it it was part of a broader concert with the the idea was to happening is the real word isn't it well it was they give classical concerts out there and that was on their series uh i don't think it was a happening in that it wasn't a conventional concert format it was they they it's an outdoor theater and the back doors open up to the outside and so people were sitting out in the woods and everything so it's not a conventional concert setting like tanglewood then yeah but the the yeah but the program only infinitely smaller you know the program was a kind of standard concert program it had you know boulez piano sonata on it and some pieces by feldman and so it was and woodstock not woodstock maverick concert hall uh they're not really known for new music they do mostly pretty conventional classical music and they have the occasional yeah, but if they were playing boulez and, and feldman in 1952 that's new music yeah, well, they somehow David Tudor got that gig, and it was a benefit. Ah, so okay. they they weren't even making money off of it, but apparently a lot of the audience were vacationing New York Philharmonic performers. I didn't realize it was outdoor, so that means that you have very you have very big differences between the indoor versions of four thirty three and the outdoor version. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I performed four thirty three in my high school, and we just it was a big auditorium. We just listened to the HVAC system for five minutes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's one of the interesting things in the book. You played this at your high school piano recital. I mean, what kind of high school student were you? <laughs> Pretty weird. Um, yeah, I, well, I grew up, I was raised on classical music from the day I was born. And so by the, t- the time I was 12, I was up in the, tr- I was in the 20th century. I was listening to Gershwin and Stravinsky and, and, Charles Ives, so, uh, and I found John Cage's book, Silence, when I was 15. It had a tremendous impact on, on them. In fact, I finally, after several years, I had to put it away for a while because I just couldn't, it was too persuasive, as, as Feldman said about Cage. So, how did the high school principal react to your performance then? <laughs> well, did people think it was just a joke? No, because I got up and explained it beforehand. Maybe I shouldn't have. Ah, good. Okay. And, yeah. You know, I also played pieces by Copeland, Brahms, and Scriabin and something of my own. And it was a serious piano recital and probably, you know, one or two music teachers there and a bunch of my friends. So, so what was the initial reaction to this? And, and not just by the people who were listening to it, but the people who heard about it afterwards and as the reputation grew, which I think was relatively quick, wasn't it? No, actually, I think that's a misconception. I, I just reread somebody saying that again recently. Um, Lamont Young claims that when he got interested in Cage in 1960, he hadn't heard of 433. And I don't think the piece... I don't think word of the piece got around all that fast. When Cage Cage became famous after his book Silence came out, and 433 is only mentioned twice in that book, and he never used, calls it by name. He just says, my silent piece. And he talks much, much more about his percussion music and about electronic music and a lot of, a lot of other stuff. Uh, I think... It seemed to me that 433 began to get famous after the book came out. And in the 50s, Cage was going to Europe a lot. 
He had some big pieces he was doing over there. Um, Cave never programmed 433. He never appeared on a concert. Ever? Nope. And um, I think it's became iconic a lot later than people think. In the 50s, I think Cage was still not attracting too much attention, except maybe in Europe. But was he already, around that time, being criticized for the prepared piano pieces and things like that? Um, you know, he was an iconoclast. I, re I remember, uh, not long ago, I saw that video of him on that TV shows where he plays that what is it called? Water work? Right, water walk. Water walk, yeah. Well, he was rang, he rang music for percussion ensembles. Right. And that shocked people. And he yeah. was using radios in his music. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think 433, it took a while for 433 to become more notorious than those pieces. But the water walk's a good example. When he went, went and did that on TV, I think that was much more... Uh, much more provocative than 433. And it was national TV. Even yeah. though you couldn't watch it again because you couldn't record it, but I'm sure a lot of people did see it at the time, and a lot of people were probably shocked. Yeah. That reminds me of a similar TV show. A few years later, it was when they had John Cale on the show, and it, was what, it wasn't what's my line, it was what did I do? And he was saying that he was part of this performance of Eric Satie's Vexation. Oh, yeah. That was 18 hours or whatever. And when you think about it, it's kind of interesting that mainstream game show TV was, prevent <laughs> was presenting things like that. So you mentioned a lot of Cage's influences, and I think that's one of the most interesting parts of your book for me, that you get a picture of Cage as a very complex man interested in ideas. And for instance, Eric Satie was one of his major musical influences. Yeah, he kind of, he, he kind of brought Satie's reputation back. There were two people... Uh, Satie, one of my favorite composers, and he died in 1925, and right at the end of his life, he became rather famous for a few years. He was interviewed, he was profiled several times in Vanity Fair magazine. So he had something of an American reputation in the 20s, and then he was forgotten about in the 30s, except by Virgil Thompson and John Cage. And they kept his... Uh, uh, name and influence alive uh again during a period in which in the 1940s Satie's music seemed complete, completely irrelevant everybody was doing writing these huge symphonies lots of brass lots lots of percussion uh complexity symphonies really boomed during the world war ii era everybody had to write the big victory symphony mm. and so even today, I mean, I spent, in 1997, I taught at Columbia University, I taught a graduate course in musical analysis, and I brought up Eric Satie, and I was nearly hooted out of the room. They couldn't believe I would be interested in somebody so irrelevant. <laughs> because his music seems simplistic when you hear it, but when you really look into it, it's much deeper than that. It's wild and incredibly inspired and just goes off in odd directions. It's wonderful. Yeah. So other influences are more on the spiritual side. Ananda Kumaraswamy and D.T. Suzuki both influenced Cage a great deal. Tell us a little bit about that. He spent a lot of time with these people learning about other ways of thinking, didn't he? Yeah, well, Ananda Kumaraswamy, was the, he was the curator of uh, fine arts at Boston Museum, I think. And he um, 
he was very well connected to the American avant-garde. He knew lots of people in the arts. He went to lots of parties. He was, and he was his. I had discovered his books through Cage, and I read quite a few of them myself. He was a fantastic writer, and it was it was all about the. Uh, the main book I think is called the Christian and Oriental concept of art. I know that's not quite right, but it's close. Um, and it was about the, the idea, rejecting the idea that art has to do with personality, that art is supposed to be expressing archetypes that are out there in the world or in the human mind or something that is not supposed to be this kind of personal expression. And I've always taken that as a real motto myself because of Kumaraswamy that I'm not writing music to show how fascinating Kyle Gann is. I'm trying to find concepts that I believe need artistic expression and can kind of be brought to earth from the stratosphere somewhere. So did Cage know Joseph Campbell? Yes. Oh, he stayed at Joseph. Oh, okay. Yeah. He, he stayed at Joseph Campbell's apartment when he first went to New York. Okay. Because, yeah, Cam Campbell is right in that same sort of direction of the, the whole archetypal human ideas and all that. Cage was also very interested in painting and hung out with a lot of painters. And I wonder if part of that isn't because the musical avant-garde in New York was mostly revolving around painters more than composers when he got there, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, painting, and not only then, I remember in the 80s, most new music concerts I went to were at art galleries. Because, uh, you know, music, classical music is extremely cons conservative and slow to change. And uh, visual artists will frequently give new experimental composers a home when nobody else will. Uh, actually, I think the art world has become a little too infused with money to still do that these days. But, um, yeah, it's a, there's a long history of new music being performed at visual art spaces because the classical spaces are just too stodgy to accept it. You know, whenever, like Harry Parch, whenever he went across America, he was rarely brought in by the music department. He was always brought in by the theater or art department or somebody. Well, the music department is, is you know, they're doing the bees, Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, and all that. It takes them a long time to get up into their, you know, their own contemporary period. Whereas I guess art is more, in some ways, you can get reproductions of art much more easily than you can sit down and listen to a whole lot of symphonies and sonatas and all that. Yeah. So it might be easier for that thing, that sort of media to circulate. Whereas if you're in some small college someplace, you're not going to have a symphony big enough to play, you know, Ives or, or Messiaen or something like that. Well, or they'll play it poorly. Well, people have been, people have been, speculating for a long time why visual, the visual arts, new things in the visual arts are so much more accepted than they are in music. And nobody can quite put their finger on it, but if you, it's easier to look at a piece of art and if you don't like it, just turn away from it. You don't have to sit there for half an hour yep. while it continues. And rich people buy art and they make... That's right. You know, they speculate on who's going to, what artists are going to make it. And so if people paying for a lot, a lot of money for something, it gets a lot more respect. So Robert Rauschenberg made his famous white paintings around the time of 433. How much was Cage influenced by that? Um, 
Actually, I've seen a little bit of doubt cast on it, but what Cage said was that the white paintings came first and 433 came after, and that when he saw the white paintings, he knew he had to go ahead and write a silent piece, otherwise music would be lagging behind. So I also want to I, I want to mention one thing that I found in researching the book that I hadn't seen anyone else mention was that in earlier in 1952, there was a college student in Michigan who made a a silent record for jukeboxes. He thought so because so he, if people who were sick and tired of hearing jukeboxes at restaurants could put in a quarter and they'd get. And they, they, they'd get a few minutes of silence. And that item was in a newspaper in January of 1952. And Cage had a copy of it in his, in, among his papers. Ah, so so he, he was, a college student had just come up with that idea as a joke. And I think he thought if he wanted to lay claim to it, he'd better move yeah. pretty quickly. So it's the same idea sort of as making it to, to slip into yeah. the music play, the Muzak playlist to get four and a half minutes of silence in the elevator instead of always hearing, you know, string versions of Montavani or whatever. Individually paid, you, you know, put it, put it next. <laughs> that would turn, turn the machine off for a few minutes. So another big influence was Morton Feldman. And I, I loved the story about how Feldman and Cage met. Yeah, they were. Um, actually, Cage and Feldman had met once before, I think through David Tudor. But the usual story about their meeting is they were both coming out of a of a classical concert where the Webern Symphony had been performed, and they both loved it. And the next piece on the program was Rachmaninoff's Symphonic Dances, and neither of them wanted to hear that. So, and I, you know, when I was young, I left many a concert because not having heard what I wanted, yeah. I didn't want to hear the next thing. So. <laughs> They got talking on the way, but they had they had originally met through briefly through David Tudor. D David Tudor seems to be the pivotal person in this period of Cage's music. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and a lot of people's. I mean, he he was playing the, the, some of the first Boulez performances in America, and um, you know he was apparently an amazing. And Stockhausen, he recorded made one of the earliest recordings of the Stockhausen clavier stuck so. He was the big avant-garde pianist of the 1950s. So, so another influence and another one of my favorites and is Henry David Thoreau. And you mentioned him in the book. And, and Cage was pretty much smitten by Thoreau, reading through his journals over and over again, writing misostics based on them. It was Thoreau's simplicity that got to Cage, wasn't it? Yeah, but not until the 60s. He discovered, he discovered Thoreau in, uh, in the 1960s through a poet friend and he before that he said he had never read anything except the essay on civil disobedience and then he became fanatical about Thoreau in the in the 60s and all during the 70s there were lots of uh Thoreau references in his in his music yeah but not but not yet by 433 okay so what is the legacy of 433 i mean you can go onto the iTunes store and you can find a whole bunch of versions of 433 by soloists, orchestral ensembles, death metal bands. I think all of these performers probably do it more as a joke than anything else. But the, 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 concept, the concept of telling people when they're in a concert hall to sit down and stop the jabbering between the pieces and to just listen to what happens for four and a half minutes is actually quite powerful. Yeah, it, it, it. 
does have amazing staying power. And I don't know, I mean, I know there are rock bands that have covered 433. I have a very rare recording of a whole lot of different versions of 433 all on one, all on one disc. And there are three ways to do it. I think one is why is you just put out a you just put out a blank recording with nothing on it. Another is you sit somewhere and record whatever environment you're in, so it becomes kind of an environmental sound. Like if I if if I were doing it right here, you'd hear the rain behind me. And some people have used it as kind of a ethnology of of interesting sonically interesting environments. And the other thing you can do is just sit there and make a recording like Frank Zappa did, and you hear him at the end get up and walk away. So you can tell, you can just barely tell that there's someone there. So you're kind of registering another human presence, but they're not doing anything. So there's no hook. You never leave a performance humming it, do you? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have we did we once had a composer come to Bard who just hated John Cage and. Couldn't prevent it, couldn't uh, avoid saying bad things about him. And and so a friend, one of my colleagues said, it's not like he has to listen to his music all the time. And I said, well, I don't know. He's probably sick and tired of hearing 433 every day. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true, though, when you think about it. You know, it's harder now for a lot of people to, to have silence. They've always got a phone with them or something, and they can always keep themselves busy. Um I sit out in the garden behind my house sometimes, particularly if I wake up too early. A cup of tea, birds flitting around, you know, the wind in the trees. That's the sort of thing that Cage was trying to capture in a way, isn't it? The fact that by paying attention to the silence, you're paying attention to the sound that prevents the silence from existing. Yeah, there's, you know, Cage did not do Zen meditation himself. Which, no, no, he was he was an armchair Zenist. Yeah, which is, which is interesting. So I... Because I feel like there's a in medit. That's one of the things you're supposed to do in meditation is register every sense impression, sort of equally, um, and not get, get taken away by your thoughts. Um, I've always Cage got, Cage got away from the idea of 4:33 being divided into three movements, and. I've come to think that, that the division into three movements is sort of the most interesting thing about it. I have, a, I have another composer friend who says they, he only likes the second movement, that the other two are too short. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I, except for the, when I performed 433 in high school, I didn't hear very many performances of it before I wrote the book. And since I, after I wrote the book, I heard lots of performances of it for a while. And what I realized was that every performance and if you perform it in three movements something different always happens in all three movements and also i think you point out that people cough in between the movements <laughs> yes people say, yeah when there was an orchestra performance and they they, they held their coughing for between movements <laughs> and something was, i mean at the first performance cage said the first first movement was the leaves were stirring the second movement it rained the third movement people started talking and I think part of the division into movements is to you realize that your brain imposes order on the sense things that are going on. And so you yeah. hear the unity of a two-minute silent movement, which is not there. <laughs> your, your brain creates those kind of divisions. 
by itself. It's trying. It's trying to 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 figure out where's the exposition, where's the resolution coming at the end, back to the tonic and all that. Yeah. <laughs> We laugh, but 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 I think I think it really was a brilliant idea in many ways because if a piece of if you listen to a piece of music and you walk away and that's it, that's one thing. But if you hear something like this and you talk about it, that in and of itself is valuable. Mm-hmm. People talk more about this than they would talk about a Beethoven string quartet, perhaps. <laughs> I'd say the Beethoven string quartet's probably a little bit better, but still. Well, I read I read speculation that that four thirty three is the most. Uh, famous American piece of music, but I still think I'd have to hold out for Rhapsody in Blue on that. <laughs> or Copeland, Fanfare for the Common Man. Yeah. That's shorter. It's been used like in Olympics and movie soundtracks and yeah. all that. I think anyone would recognize it when they hear that. Yeah. So you knew John Cage fairly well. You met him many times. Yeah. Uh, I met him first when I was 18. He was kind of unaccountably not kind to me, uh, considering what, that was 1974. <clears throat> and I ran into him frequently until the end of his life. He was at lots of concerts in New York. Uh, I was at schools where he was brought to, you know, brought in to lecture. And in 1982, I was administrative assistant for the New Music America Festival, and we dedicated that festival to him. And he came in for it. So yeah, I got to talk to him quite a few times. He was was that the one in Chicago that yeah. made a whole stink about something. There was a controversy, wasn't there? Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, he, the, he, he said Glenn Branca's music seemed fascist. Yes, that's a topic for another show. Um, but I remember <laughs> I bought the cassette of the recordings of that concert, which has one of the most amazing recordings by Harold Budd of his song Children of the Hill on it, which is like 20 minutes long. I love that. Oh, I, yeah, I, I transcribed that recording because a baby was crying all the way through it. That's right, yeah. And so I made a transcription of it, and we've re-recorded it. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was the actual live recording. Oh, Sarah Sarah Cahill re-recorded it in Kansas City, and she's doing oh. a Huddersfield uh, Festival this November. Okay. And so, yeah, if you want a, if you want a new recording of that without the crying baby, I've got it. <laughs> that 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 is. I'll tell you how much I love that piece of music. I first heard it on a cassette compilation from the Belgian record label Les Buscules. Yeah. And I dubbed it onto a loop cassette that was six minutes long. Remember, you could buy those cassettes that would run in a loop. And I would play it in my house, just run it on the loop over and over. And it's about four minutes and 30 seconds long, so you'd get about a minute and a half of silence, and then it would come back on. That's the short version. What he did at New Music yes, I know. was the long version. Okay, It's yeah. like 20-some-odd minutes, yeah. No, that's an amazing piece of music. So I met John Cage in 1986, at the time, I was living in Paris, and I was editing a journal about the I Ching, and I wrote Cage, and I said, we'd love to interview you and talk about how you use the I Ching. And he was such a kind man. We went to his apartment on West 18th Street, and the first thing I remember sitting down, he had that table, and he had the windows behind him, was all this traffic noise. And I was thinking, it's noisy, but wait, but wait, this is John Cage, so the noise is important. And it, it was it was interesting, because I was interested in the I Ching as the I Ching, and for him it was merely a random number generator, so we really didn't have that much to talk about. But I'm also a fan of James Joyce, and he invited me to come down to a gallery, this was around Christmas, and I think it was on New Year's Eve, where he was starting a reading of Finnegan's Wake for 24 hours. And that was wonderful to hear his voice reading Finnegan's Wake. He, he has such a good voice for that sort of thing. But he was an incredibly generous man. I wish I had 
had a chance to, to spend more time with him. He was difficult to talk to. He, his conversation would dart off in such strange directions and you didn't, he just, he'd say something surprising and you just didn't know how to respond. <laughs> and he was being very kind, but he was just, his mind darted around in these weird directions. This is one of those pieces that has, I don't think it, you could say it shocked people, but it it really says something very deep. I can't really think of another piece of modern music that has this sort of conceptual impact. Can you? I mean, the closest thing I would think is maybe Brian Eno's Music for Airports, which sort of founded a genre of music, but not in a way that shocked people. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people hear about this and they think it's a joke, whereas it's not a joke. It really isn't. Well, Nam Jim Paik had a piece in which he very, very slowly lifted a violin and then smashed it. <laughs> that one, that one can be shocking. It doesn't get performed very often. Yeah, but I'm talking about something that, that has a life afterwards. Yeah. Um, you know, something that, that sure. creates, cr- creates a wake behind it in a way. And, and it's funny, out of all the music that Cage wrote, that it would be this one that people identify as the iconic piece, whereas, you know, go, go back to something more accessible in, in the early period, the sonatas and interludes for pe- prepared piano, the first string quartet. Those are pieces that are far more listenable and the, the somewhat radical nature of his late music, the number pieces. But maybe there's just too many of them. And this one's short and simple and you can explain it. And it's easy to just use it as like a question on Jeopardy. Another game show reference. <laughs> well, it's a it's a piece that you can describe rather than listen to, and people think they know it. So, and yet, it's a piece that everyone can perform at any time. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fascinating. Sure, good luck with it, and and if you want to talk about the Concord book, I'd be happy to do that too. <laughs> All right, let's wrap things up with our next track picks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? This week, I've selected something that I've already used as the next track, and it's kind of cheating in a way. It's Brad Meldow's latest record called After Bach. What Meldow did is he took a number of preludes from the Well-Tempered Clavier, and he riffed on them. So he alternates a piece of his and a piece of Bach's. I selected this a few months ago when it came out, and the reason I picked it again is because I bought the CD. I actually bought the plastic disc with the music on it that comes on the disc. I'd been listening to this on Apple Music, and, you know, we talk about streaming on the show and how we're reluctantly moving over to streaming, and I still like to own music, and so what I do is I put things in my Amazon shopping cart, and I wait until I see a price alert. If the price drops, then certain things I'll buy, and this dropped to five pounds for the CD. Five pounds! How could I not buy it and make sure Brad gets a little bit of money for his music? And I've ripped my own lossless copy of it. And, you know, it's it just seems like the thing to do of something I like this much. Just as an aside, Doug and I, the other day, we were looking on Amazon to see how many CDs you can buy for five pounds. Old CDs, we were looking at things like, you know, some Grateful Dead records, things like Humble Pie and 70s stuff and 80s stuff. It's amazing how many CDs you can buy new for five pounds, not to mention buying a used CD for two pounds in shipping or even less. So if you like jazz and you like classical, check this out. It's wonderful piano music. And if you're in the UK, it might still be five pounds on Amazon. Doug, what have you got? Kyle Gann, during the interview, uh, briefly mentioned Frank Zappa's connection with John Cage and uh, a recording of 433 that he did. This gives me an excuse to talk about Frank Zappa because I'm a Zappa fan. I'm frequently asked, is there one album that I can get started listening to Frank Zappa with? Um, 
No. <laughs> it's very hard to pick a single album that is representative of his entire body of work. However, there is one album, I think, uh, that if you've never heard Frank Zappa, this will give you a, a taste of of the kind of music that he, he eventually did. And the album I'm picking is Chunga's Revenge. This is a Frank Zappa solo album, not a mother's album, although there are mothers of invention musicians on the album. This is his third solo album from 1970, and it's the first album I ever heard by Frank Zappa all the way through. A friend of mine had it, and uh, we loved it a lot. It's not a great-sounding record, but it's got a little bit of everything that Frank would become famous for. It's got, you know, the parody songs, and it's got some avant-garde percussion, and it's got some improvisational stage stuff, and it's got the doo-wop and the, and the rock and the blues it's just a little bit of everything. It's just not a good sounding record. That's my only problem with it. But it does have a representative slice of the kind of music that Frank did. Notably on this album, this is the first appearance of, of Howard Kalen and Mark Volman, who would become known as the Fluorescent Leech and Eddie, or just Flo and Eddie. They were the lead vocalists for the band The Turtles, and they hooked up with Frank for a number of years, and this is their first appearance on it. And their vocals just add a, a whole different perspective to uh, Frank's music. Anyway... If you want to get into some Frank and you want something that's palatable to some degree, <laughs> check this out. Frank Zappa, Chunga's Revenge is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.